Bitwise Bobby. So I've been retired from Merck for the past two years, and I spent 32 years with the company, always in some type of IT capacity. You know, the last uh, 10 years or so, uh, the role I had was the global chief technology officer. And from a cyber perspective, you know, historically, uh, the cybersecurity function would report up through a CTO-like organization. And that was the case for many years at Merck. But then as cyber grew in prominence and importance, we decided to establish cyber as a separate organization. The lead of cyber then became my peer as part of the overall leadership for the IT function. So needless to say, when Merck was impacted by the NetNotPetya virus, that production compute stack was significantly impacted and degraded, hence my involvement in that particular incident. Can you explain what happened with the NotPetya virus? There was some malware that exploited third-party software broadly used by companies that conduct business in the Ukraine to file their Ukrainian taxes. And a threat actor hacked that code on the servers. And the Merck technician working on the server in the Ukraine regularly updated the software. And every time that update happened, there was more malware code that was looking for opportunities to exploit the corporate network. And then on one particular morning, there was a, a way to exploit the corporate network. And then once it found its way into the Windows network, the code itself kept looking for credentials that had higher levels of authority across the network. So in other words, it would grab the credentials on the local server in the Ukraine and then probe the network with those credentials to log on to other servers and then keep probing the network. And once the malware got on a server or a workstation, it masked itself as ransomware. And so there was a splash page set up and said, your workstation's been encrypted. Send this much Bitcoin to this particular address and we'll send you the encryption keys. But it turns out that that was a ruse and the malware itself was just bent on destruction. Within less than 20 minutes, over 50,000 Windows devices across the Merck network were completely encrypted, and you can think of them as destroyed. You know, within 20 minutes to a half hour, the entire company was completely shut down in terms of its ability to conduct business. In the first 24 hours after that, how do you prioritize tasks? You know, my immediate response was, well, shut down the network, limit the spread of the particular virus. But by the time they actually pushed the red button to shut down the network, it was too late. Picture an office building with 1,500 Merck engineers working in it, a five-story building, and the stairways were filled with engineers walking to the help desk with their laptops that had been completely fried by this not touching malware business. So it was kind of surreal in the first hour or so. I got a call from the CEO and the CFO, you know, Rich, you know, how bad do you think this is? And my response was, well, it's pretty bad. <laughs> you know, we're not going to be recovering with, from this thing in hours or weeks or, you know, it could potentially take months. Um, so that was the first hour or so. And then you take a step back and you think about how do you organize? And I threw out the organizational structure that we had. And so rather than say, look, each of you within your area of responsibility, figure out how to start triaging this incident, we had to divide and conquer. 
So we, we put leaders in charge of the major topical areas, and then they immediately set up war rooms, and we replicated that model in all three regions, a network team in Europe, a network team in Asia, a network team in the U.S., and by doing it that way, we could work 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So the first thing within the 24 hours is to get that structure. So we had two teams in place, the operational team to respond to the incident and fix it. And then the team that analyzed what happened. And then we had to wrap corporate governance around it. You know, one of the first things that we did in the first 24 to 48 hours is we laid out a set of guiding principles for the organization to refer to when they were thinking through difficult decisions. So, you know, the first guiding principle was our number one priority is to ensure that our patients have access to the medicines that they need in order to treat their diseases. You know, number two priority was to ensure that Patients enrolled in clinical trials continue to receive their product that we need to operate the clinical trials. Then we're going to close the books. Then we're going to ensure regulatory compliance. We're going to get the manufacturing supply chain up and running. So the entire focus of the effort was getting the company back on its feet, understanding what happened, and putting a plan together to limit the probability that it would happen again. How do you broach this topic with shareholders or customers? The first 24 hours also included a mad dash on behalf of our communication public relations organization on what we should disclose or not disclose publicly. Take shareholders as an example. It was a material impact. There were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars that at that time were at risk and ultimately were lost. If financially anything material happens to the company, you're obligated to notify the shareholders. Same is true uh, with patients and customers, although in the biopharma industry, you're limited in what you can communicate directly to patients. So that communication typically happens through the regulatory agencies like the FDA. And we were required to communicate early on to the FDA what was happening, how we were fixing it, how we were ensuring to patient safety and compliance. And then there were regular, if not daily, calls with the regulatory agencies. How does a call with a regulatory agency look different than a call with a business entity? So the, the business entities, they're understanding and they get up, but they'll get upset because the flow of product from the manufacturer to the business entity is disrupted. It's like a supply chain issue. So if we have trouble supplying product to a large drug distributor like McKesson, then McKesson is going to also suffer financially because of that. And there's an impact to their company. So you know, it's a different conversation. The conversation is how are we going to continue to get product to you? The discussion with the regulatory agencies is more challenging for a couple of different reasons. One, regulatory law is not always clear and interpretation varies depending upon the regulatory inspector that you're talking to. So there's not like there's a clear playbook. You know, follow these 10 steps and you'll be okay from an FDA perspective. It can be a little fuzzy. And the second thing is there's not a whole lot of negotiations. In other words, if the regulatory says you're going to do A, B, and C, you're going to do A, B, and C. And by law, they have the ability to shut you down. They can shut down an entire manufacturing plant, just like they did with the Abbott baby formula situation that's going on right now. 
So it's a more tense conversation and the downside ramifications are much higher. 